Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 120 of Reclaiming the Faith, and in this episode, I'm going to be looking at the similarities and differences between the Pharisees of the first century and the early Christians. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, you can find digital, audio, and paperback versions of my book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom on Amazon and other places as well. Please go check that out. And if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review there on that Amazon page. There's a link to that in the show notes, so please go check that out. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and if you go to our two YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live, you can see all the content we're putting out every week there. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into episode 120. For our study today on how the Pharisees compared and contrasted to the early church, I'm going to be relying heavily on a book by Dr. Ron Mosley called Yeshua, A Guide to the Real Jesus and the Original Church. And I'll put a link to that book in the show notes as well. I'll also be looking at Josephus and some writings of the early Christians in this study. So let's dive in. The Pharisee movement began in the second century BC, and the foundational aspect of the Pharisaic philosophy was the idea that the Babylonian captivity was the result of Israel's failure to keep the Torah. Because of this, during the New Testament period, the study of Torah was one of the highest forms of worship. During the first century, there were two main schools of Pharisees. The first was the school of Hillel, and the second was the school of Shammai. Hillel was said to have been more gentle by nature, and Shammai was labeled as impatient. The Talmud tells men to be as meek as Hillel and not as quick-tempered as Shammai. The school of Shammai was noted for its severity and strictness and was considered the mouthpiece of the wealthy Pharisees. Hillel, on the other hand, came to Galilee from Babylon and eventually rose to the presidency of the Sanhedrin. And Hillel's school liberalized the requirements for becoming a Pharisee, and it allowed he allowed anyone, regardless of background, to enter the school. Hillel encouraged the evangelization of Gentiles, while Shammai did not. In Shammai's school, initiation was only open to a select few who could meet the rules of the past plus 
a number of other strict regulations, which usually eliminated all but those of the most notable aristocratic families and those students who proved themselves wise and humble according to his beliefs. Now, though the schools of Hillel and Shemai did have many differences of opinion about how to treat people and how to be viewed as pure before God, they did share many similarities. Josephus, in his Antiquities, writes about the beliefs of the Pharisees as contrasted to those of the Essenes and the Sadducees. So, let me read from Josephus and his description of first century Jews. He says, At this time, there were three sects among, among the Jews who had different opinions concerning human actions. The one was called the sect of the Pharisees, another the sect of the Sadducees, and the other the sect of the Essenes. Now for the Pharisees, they say that some actions, but not all, are the work of fate, and some of them are in our own power, and that they are liable to fate, but are not caused by fate." But the sect of the Essenes affirm that fate governs all things, and that nothing befalls men but what is according to its determination. And for the Sadducees, they take away fate and say that there is no such thing, and that the events of human affairs are not at its disposal. But they suppose that all our actions are in our own power, so that we are ourselves the cause of what is good and receive what is evil from our own folly. So to put this in more modern terms, you could say that the Essenes were more like the very deterministic uh, Calvinists of our day who would say that they hold a high view of the sovereignty of God, that God controls all things. God determines all things. And you could say that the Sadducees are viewed like some stereotype Armenians, um, you could say extreme Armenians, saying that God doesn't control anything, that human uh, free will controls all things. The Pharisees, however, uh, on whole, are viewed as more of a middle ground, kind of like the early Christians, that saying God's well, with this word fate, that God's sovereignty is over all things. God is over all things because he is the king of all. And yet humans also have free will. So God in his sovereignty has allowed humans to truly have free will. Uh, and so you have a blend of the two there with the Pharisees. The Pharisees also believed in the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, the existence of angels, and the use of the oral law, which we will get into later. Now, let's look at the seven types of Pharisees. The Jewish Talmud describes seven kinds of Pharisees, five of which were hypocrites and two of which were good. First, you had what is called the shoulder Pharisee, who paraded his good deeds before men like someone wearing a badge on his shoulder. Second, you have the wait a little Pharisee, who would ask someone to wait for him while he performed some good deed. 
Both of these groups seem to draw our attention back to Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The third Pharisee is called the blind Pharisee who would bruise himself walking into a wall because he had to shut his eyes to avoid seeing a woman. Fourth, we have the pestle Pharisee who walked with hanging head so as to not observe some alluring temptations. Fifth, you have the ever-reckoning Pharisee who was always counting his good deeds to see if they offset his failures. Those were the five bad Pharisees, but there were two groups of good Pharisees, and the sixth group was called the God-fearing Pharisee who was truly righteous like Job, and seventh, the God-loving Pharisee, who had a true affection for God like Abraham. Perhaps these two groups Jesus talks about also in Matthew chapter 6, when he says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Or in verse 6, where he says, But you, when you go pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Perhaps this is also the type of Pharisee that Jesus interacts with in Mark chapter 12, when a scribe, who is almost certainly a Pharisee, since all Pharisees considered themselves to be scribes, though not all scribes were Pharisees, came up to Jesus and asked Jesus, what is the foremost commandment of all? And in verse 29, Jesus answers, the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Yes, there were good Pharisees that we see in the Gospels. Not all of these Pharisees would fit into the Luke 11 or Matthew 23 category where Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees and rulers of the Jews. There are good godly Pharisees listed in the Gospels. Think about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospel of John. Think about the Pharisees described in Luke who showed Jesus hospitality and some who even warned Jesus of an attempt that is trying to be made on his life. 
move to the book of Acts and think about Gamaliel, who was a student of Hillel and who also taught Paul, who in Acts chapter 5 argues with the Sanhedrin to not put the apostles to death. He urges them to leave the men, leave the apostles alone. There are some distinct similarities between Jesus' teachings and those of the Pharisees, particularly those from the school of Hillel. For example, before Jesus began to teach the people at age 30, Hillel had already made this popular summation of the law. What you would not have done to you, do not do to another. That is the whole law, and the rest is commentary. That sounds very similar to what we call the golden rule from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. It seems like Jesus is there in the Sermon on the Mount, agreeing with Hillel about the most important rule of how to treat people. Also, think about when Jesus got in trouble in the synagogues for healing people who were sick on the Sabbath. Well, Hillel would have allowed that, but Shammai would not have. Also, in Matthew chapter 15, there were evidently Shemite Pharisees who were complaining that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before eating. And in Luke chapter 11, in answer to that same complaint, Jesus goes into a familiar Hillel dissertation concerning the cleansing of the outside of the cup. And here, Jesus is clearly referring to a common dispute between the two schools of Hillel and Shammai over when the washing should take place. So according to Luke, on this issue, Jesus was actually siding with the school of Hillel, that it was permissible to wash the outside of the cup later. In Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus again taking up an issue that was debated between those two schools. In verses 4 and 5, he rebuked the Pharisees for consecrating all of their possessions to the temple, which sometimes led to poverty and prevented proper care for aging parents. And it was the Shamites who taught that one could never be released from such a vow to the temple. Jesus used his voice in opposition of this Shamite practice. Now, speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, just before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Pharisees had fled Jerusalem and gone to Yavna, also known as Jamnia, and were spared while the Jewish followers of Jesus fled to the mountains of Pella and also survived there. Over time, these two groups began to change. Even though they were predominantly Jewish, they began to have less in common. And by AD 90, rabbinic Judaism began to have the same type of hatred against those Jews who had chosen to follow Jesus Christ 60 and 50 years earlier. 
In fact, by the end of the first century, the number of Jews following Jesus had grown so large that at the Council of Yavne, the Pharisees added an additional benediction to the 18 prayers read in the synagogue. This prayer was actually a curse on the followers of Jesus and the Samaritans, which had the effect of expelling the followers of Jesus from the synagogue, which many had continued to attend until that time. And this is what that 19th benediction said, For the apostates, let there be no hope, and let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the Nozarim and the Minim be destroyed in a moment, and let them be blotted out of the book of life, and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humbles the arrogant. And two medieval Cairo Geniza copies equate the Minim and Nozarim with the Nazarenes and Christians. Now, several scholars have seen a striking similarity between Justin Martyr's complaint to Trypho the Jew in that document known as Justin's Dialogue with Trypho, when Justin says that the Jews curse those who believe in Christ while they are in their synagogues. Interestingly, the Gospel of John talks about Pharisees who believed in Jesus were afraid of confessing him publicly for fear of being kicked out of the synagogues. The earliest belief about the Gospel of John is that it was written right around the same time of this Council of Yavna or the Council of Jamnia, where this 19th benediction was added that Christians be cast out of the synagogues and cursed. Now, the Gospel of John begins with a phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, Early Jewish theologians had developed an entire philosophy around what they called Memra, or the Word of God, to which they ascribed six particular attributes. In the book of John, we see these same six attributes ascribed to the Logos, Jesus, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Notice how John associates these memra attributes with Jesus, the Messiah. The first of these attributes of memra was that it was sometimes distinct from and sometimes the same as God. Likewise, John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The second was that memra was the agent of creation. So, John chapter 1, verse 3 says, all things were made by him. The third was that Memra was the agent of salvation. So, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. The fourth of these Jewish attributes of the Memra was that Memra was the agent of theophany which is an appearance of God. This attribute is seen in John chapter 1, verse 14, which says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The fifth was that the Memra 
was the agent of covenant signing. So in John chapter 1, verse 17, he compares the covenant of grace and truth through Christ to the covenants of Abraham and Moses. And finally, the sixth was that Memra was the agent of revelation. This attribute can be seen in John chapter 1, verse 18, which says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Is it possible that a large reason for John writing his gospel is so that Jews who have rejected Jesus would believe that He is the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. The earliest extra-biblical Christian document was most likely written a couple decades before the Gospel of John, and this document is called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And in this document, we see the early Christians who were predominantly Jewish, having practices that were similar yet distinct from the unbelieving Pharisees of their day. One of the examples of this is found in what the Didache says about fasting. The Didache says that the hypocrites, the quote-unquote hypocrites, fasted on the second and fifth day of the week. That would be Monday and Thursday. Yet in the Didache, in the teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations, Christians are commanded to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, which would be the fourth and sixth days of the week. Also, in the Didache, we have a section called the Fences. This is a term taken directly from the teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees counted 613 laws in the Torah, consisting of 248 commands to action and 365 prohibitions. To make sure they did not break even one of these by accident or ignorance, they created a hedge or a fence around the laws. These hedges are called traditions in the New Testament. The idea was to establish enough traditions around the law that an individual would have to break a tradition before he could go all the way to breaking an explicit provision of the law. But serious problems began to arise when the practice of establishing fences reached such a severe level that the Pharisees began determining a person's orthodoxy by his respect for the fences. Thus, Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And later, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And unfortunately, this practice of establishing un 
scriptural traditions for the sake of keeping people from breaking commandments still continues to this day. But the beautiful thing about the Didache is that the fences in the Didache sound so much like Jesus. Let me read a few for you. This is from chapter 3 in the Didache, which is called The Fences. Do not be angry, for anger leads to murder. Do not be jealous, nor argumentative, nor hot-tempered, for all of these things give birth to murder. My child, do not be lustful, for lust leads to sexual promiscuity. Do not speak obscenely, and do not have wandering eyes, for all of these things give birth to promiscuity. My child, do not deal in omens, since it leads to idolatry. Do not be an enchanter, nor an astrologer, nor a magician. Do not even be around such things, for all of these things give birth to idolatry. My child, do not be a liar, since it leads to theft. Do not be greedy or vain, for all of these things give birth to theft. My child, do not be a complainer, since it leads to blasphemy. Do not be stubborn nor evil-minded, for all of these things give birth to blasphemy. Be meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. Be patient and merciful and sincere and quiet and kind and always fearing the words which you have heard. Do not praise yourself and do not let arrogance enter your soul. Do not join your soul with a pompous person, but walk only with the righteous and the humble. Hate all hypocrisy and everything that is not pleasing to the Lord. Never forsake the Lord's commandments, but you shall guard the things which you have received, neither adding to them nor taking away from them. And that, that is the difference between the fences of the earliest Christians and those that developed over time, even into our day. The fences of the early Christians can be traced right back to the Word of God and not from human tradition. Like the Pharisees of the first century, we too have many traditions that Jesus would probably be okay with and could actually use and, and clarify to show his teachings. However, there are many traditions that we hold that may even have a form of godliness that Jesus would absolutely not approve of. And so, what we are left with is this question. Do we invalidate the teachings of the Lord for the sake of our traditions? Or are we willing to lay our traditions and our fences aside to establish the teachings of Jesus and his apostles in our lives? God bless you. 